Let's, let's pray. God, we gather together this morning to celebrate the resurrected king, to celebrate that Jesus is alive, that the tomb couldn't hold him, and that that, that has an, uh, an impact on our lives today that's indescribable. We thank you, God, that uh, Jesus is alive. We thank you that he went to the cross for us. We thank you, God. We praise you and worship you today. We give you honor, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. I believe with my whole heart, every fiber of my being, Jesus is alive. He is alive. That's so cool. Hey, uh, we are so glad you're here. Uh, If it's your first time, a special welcome. If you've been away a long time, uh, uh, welcome to you as well. What's going to happen right now is ushers are going to come down. They're going to pass out books that are going to get passed down the aisle. And uh, we'd like for everybody to go ahead and put your name and your contact info there. We would love to send you a a note and just say thanks for coming. Uh, If it's your first time, we've got a gift that we'll send as well that you'll like. Uh, and uh, it, it'll be great. We would love to do that. Uh, once the books are done, what's going to happen is the ushers are going to bring some buckets down, and it's going to be for our offering. A lot of people at North Point give electronically. Uh, they do that, but we, but we pass the buckets so that people can give uh, here if you, uh, in whatever way that they want. Um, if you're new, don't feel like you have to do that. Um, don't feel like there's any sense of obligation or anybody's going to be watching. That's not true at all. If you want to give, that's a cool thing. We give because God has given so much to us. And um, he has blessed us in incredible ways. And so uh, if you want to give and, and uh, share in the offering, that would be way cool. Uh, as I thought about, well, stop for a second. Uh, um, if you're here for the first time or whatever, you haven't been here for a while, um, take out your smartphone and download the North Point app, if you would. Uh, if you go to Play Store or uh, the iStore or whatever, you can download the North Point app, and there'll be stuff on the screen that comes behind me that, that has fill-in-the-blank stuff. You can write that. Keep the notes for the message. Let me just say this in advance. If you uh, download the app right now, feel free to do that. Nobody will think you're weird. We'd love it, actually, if you do. Um, if you download it, uh, you may have to uh, just kind of play around in it a little bit and refresh it to get today's message because it, it brings up a message that's from uh, several months ago and uh, it just takes some time to cycle through. So there you go. Uh, as I've thought about today, as I've thought about Easter Sunday, for the last few months there's been one thought that has captured my attention, one thought that I couldn't get out of my mind as, as I studied the, the Gospels about the most important event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus. The story of Easter, the story of the resurrection is the story of God's incredible love for his creation. The story of God's incredible love for his creation, his love for you, his love for me. That's the reason behind, that's the cause for why this thought in my brain has been so persistent for the last three months. Um, Think about that for a second. It It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've been serving Jesus for your entire life or if you're here today because coming to church on Easter Sunday is something that your family does. It doesn't matter if you've been praying and reading the Bible a lot or if the last place that you want to be is here today. It doesn't matter if you've got this intellectual understanding of Jesus or you've got this vital relationship with with him 
He loves you. He loves you. No matter what, from the beginning of your life, he has loved you. He's loved you through the good times and the bad, through the, through the times that you've acted stupid and your life's been a mess. He's loved you when you've been hurting. He's loved you when you've experienced success. God loves you. God loves you. That's the reason that, this, that there's this thought that I've not been able to get out of my, out of my brain. When you think about Jesus in his life and you think about what, when it comes down to the last week of his life, that, that week that begins with this growing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, that, that begins with the, with the foreshadowing music as Jesus comes into town for the triumphal entry. He's, he's the conquering hero that comes in. All of Jerusalem is ready to come out and greet him and crown him king, make him king. Everybody except the religious leaders. Within a day, um, Jesus goes into the, into the temple, into the holy place designed for the worship of God. And he discovers that that holy place, that place set aside for worship, has become kind of a cross between family dollar store and a yard sale. And when, when Jesus discovers that, he goes ballistic, he goes crazy. He takes out a whip and he turns over the tables and he snaps the whip and clears everything out of there. Because it wasn't designed that way. As the week progresses, the tension that exists between Jesus and the religious leaders is almost palpable. You can almost feel it and cut it. It's the big holiday week for Passover. But the tension just continues to grow. And that's the thing that everybody in Jerusalem is talking about. Finally, on Thursday night, Jesus gets together with his closest friends, his, his 12 guys that he spent three years with. And he washes their feet and celebrates the Passover. And he goes to a garden to pray. When he's praying in the garden, this, this angry mob comes and he gets arrested. And he then spends most of Thursday night being shuttled back and forth between the religious leaders, between Caiaphas, the, the religious leader, between um, Herod, the Jewish uh, governor, the Jewish king of that area, and Pilate, the Roman representative of Caesar. He goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Uh, False charges are made. The crowds of people become a crazy mob. And early Friday morning, Jesus is sentenced to death. There's no substance to the charges that are against him. And both Herod and Pilate know that Jesus is innocent. But they give in to the insistence of the crowd. And Jesus is beaten beyond recognition and humiliated in front of the city. And ultimately, his hands and feet are nailed to the cross. In about six hours, Jesus is dead. All of the hopes and dreams of his followers are destroyed. All of the love that he showed, all of the people that he healed, it, it just feels like it was wasted. Everything good has not just turned bad. It's the worst possible outcome imaginable. Despair and hopelessness rule. The city, the people of the city are depressed. They're disenchanted. A historian, a man named Luke, described what happened on Sunday morning this way. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared for Jesus' burial. 
And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of, of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, to the apostles, an idle tale. And they didn't believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He, uh, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. This story, right, is straight out of a Hollywood creative meeting. It's bizarre. It's unbelievable. It's, there's hope that comes out of despair, emotions that are turned upside down. It's unbelievable. And yet, it happened. It's the story of Jesus' resurrection. In their despair, the women remembered the words of Jesus. The Son of Man must be delivered unto sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. Those words they remembered were like, they were like the aroma that took them back to a time and a place that was full of hope and promise. Jesus was alive. Jesus is alive. If, if you've been gone from church for a long time, or if you've not had a real relationship with God maybe for a long time, you may remember the words of Jesus from Sunday school or from vacation Bible school when you were little or maybe from your mom or your dad or your grandma or your grandpa reading the Bible to you. The memory may have faded, but this morning, hear the words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet will he live. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's the thought that's been pestering me for three months. God is the God of the second chance. The resurrection is the story of a second chance. Easter's not about bunnies and candy and springtime. It's about a second chance. Let me show you what I mean. There are a couple of characters in the, in the account of the uh, crucifixion of Jesus that are critical to the plot line. Both of these characters are followers of Jesus. Both are part of the 12 that spend three years with Jesus. One of them is in charge of the treasury. He's the guy who, who takes care of the bills and carries around the money for the 12 as they travel with Jesus. The other is one of Jesus' best friends. He's a part of the inner circle. He's, uh, he, he sees things that some of the other guys don't see because of his relationship with Jesus. That guy's name is Peter. Uh, Peter was a strong leader. He had strong opinions. He wasn't afraid at all to say what he thought. He was a successful businessman. He was a leader in his hometown. He was probably the guy who sat front and center every time that Jesus taught 
absorbing every word. Peter was the guy who, when the disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee, and the storm was brewing, it was the middle of the night, and there was this figure that looked like a ghost that was walking towards them. Peter was the guy who said, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come. And Jesus said, Peter, come. And Peter stepped out of the boat onto the water and walked on the water in a way that we can't even wrap our brains around until he took his eyes off Jesus and became afraid and began to sink. Peter was, was a guy of, of conviction and passion and resolve. Peter was the guy after the Passover meal, when, when Jesus predicted his death, Jesus said, I'm going to die. Peter was the guy who said, you know what? I'm not going to let that happen. I don't care what everybody else does. I'm not going to let that happen. I'll go with you into battle. I'll go, I'll go with you into, into prison. I'll, I will die with you, Jesus. It's not going to happen. And Jesus said to him, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you're going to n- deny me three times. Peter was this guy so full of resolve. So when the mob came to arrest Jesus in the garden that night, Peter draws his sword and swings it at one of the guys in the crowd and cuts off his ear. And even though Jesus heals heals that ear on that servant, all the disciples disperse. They run away because they're afraid of what's going on as Jesus is arrested. Peter kind of follows the crowd to the house of, of Caiaphas, the high priest, And there he's standing outside the house as Jesus is interrogated by the religious leaders. Their their hatred for Jesus is intense. And Peter's outside warming himself by the fire. And three different times people come up to him and say, Hey, aren't you one of those followers of Jesus? And Peter says, No, I'm not. Not at all. Somebody else comes up and says, The way that you talk, you're a Galilean. You've got to be connected with Jesus. And Peter says, I am not with that guy. Third person comes up and, and asks him again, and, and Peter responds with anger and, and, and with this emotion that's just incredible, saying, I don't know that man. He, um, he, he shouts. He's got this intensity that had to incredibly hurt Jesus. A rooster crowed, and Peter remembers the words of Jesus from just a few hours earlier. Matthew, one of the eyewitnesses that night, says that when the rooster crowed and Peter realized that he had been weak instead of strong, that he had chosen his own safety over the protection of Jesus that he had promised, when he had denied the relationship with Jesus, denied the relationship with the, with the guy that he, had, he, he himself had said, this is the Messiah, the Son of God, that when Peter realized that, his world crashed. Everything Peter had counted on was gone. Everything he had invested in vanished. And Matthew says that Peter wept bitterly. Not just tears of regret and sorrow, but heaving sobs of shame and regret and pain and loneliness. Despair is not a strong enough word to describe what Peter experienced in that moment. He was in desperate need of a do-over, in desperate need of a second chance. The second character in the story of of Jesus' crucifixion was was Judas. Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He was the guy in charge of the money for the 12. Uh, He was the guy who paid the bills as they traveled and taught. The day before Jesus' big entrance into Jerusalem, 
what we call the triumphal entry. Jesus is in Bethany, and the scriptures tell us about the party that they, that they hold in Jesus' honor. At this party for him on Saturday night, um, <clears throat> a woman comes and takes a, a fabulously expensive bottle of perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet as they eat and then wipes that perfume off Jesus' feet with her hair in an incredible, an incredible display of honor and humility and worship. Judas sees that and he gets torqued. He gets angry because he realizes how much that perfume cost. And he thinks if that perfume had been sold, we could have put that money in the treasury and I could have used some of that for me. That was Judas. As the hatred of the religious leaders intensified for Jesus, Judas recognized what was happening. He recognized there was an opportunity for himself to make a little money on the side. Just a few days later, a day before Passover, he agrees to turn Jesus over to the religious leaders, and they agree to pay him 30 pieces of silver. We don't know exactly what the buying power of 30 pieces of silver was at that time in Palestine. If the value was comparable to what it is today, the, the value, depending on the size of the coins, was somewhere, the value was somewhere between $90 and $3,000. Not much money for a man's life. It's not like they offered him $5 million. But Peter accepted it and turned in Jesus. Here's, a, here's what we do know that I think is very interesting. In the Jewish law, if one of your animals, if one of your bulls gored the slave of a neighbor and killed that man, the law said that the value of that slave's life was 30 shekels of silver. 30 pieces of silver. The amount of money that it took, according to the Jewish law, to redeem the death of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. The same amount paid for Jesus to redeem your life and mine. After the Passover meal, Judas led the religious leaders, a group of soldiers, and an angry mob into the garden. And they showed him who Jesus was by kissing him on the cheek. Judas delivered Jesus, giving him up for trial, for judgment, and execution. Why did he do it? We don't really know. Maybe for financial gain. Maybe it was because Judas was frustrated that Jesus wasn't the king that he thought. Maybe Judas was afraid and thought, you know what? Uh, it's getting too close to home. They're, they're, they're uh, ready to arrest Jesus. Maybe they'll arrest me, and if I give him them, I'll have a clean slate. We don't know exactly why Judas, why Judas did it. But just a few hours later, after Jesus has been condemned to death, Judas is overcome with guilt. He tries to return the money to the religious leaders and explains that Jesus is innocent. And the religious leaders laugh in his face. Judas was in desperate need of a do-over, of a second chance. Understand this morning that regret is powerful. Regret can consume your life. Regret comes from losing something that, that you had, that you once had, maybe a possession, maybe a dream, maybe a relationship with people. Once it's gone, there's this sense of regret that comes that leads to our detachment relationally from people. We, we kind of crawl in a hole and separate ourselves from others. It leads to disillusionment to this view of life that, you know what, everything's always going to be bad. It leads to despair. Regret 
is powerful. With regret, there's a feeling that nothing is ever going to change. That what happens is going to be a cheap replacement for what could have been. God feels really distant. Regret causes anger. It causes us to long for this fresh start in our life. We, we adopt this hopeless acceptance. God's not ever going to act. Discouragement and despair become your everyday companions. They become your best friends. It's easy for us to settle and believe that nothing is going to change in our lives. Our job's not going to change. Our marriage isn't going to change. Our relationship with our kids isn't going to change. Our finances aren't going to change. And not only is it not going to change, it can't change. There's no way that anything can change. For Judas, he was consumed with regret. His regret led him to killing himself and never experiencing the second chance that Jesus provided through the resurrection. For Peter, his regret was the result of turning his back on his closest friend, of folding in the face of danger, the death of the truth that he had staked his life on, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But for Peter, two days later, the women come and tell him a story that's beyond anything he can believe that the tomb was empty and Jesus was alive. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything for Peter, changed everything for us. For Peter, the resurrection took what could have been a lifetime shattered by regret and replaced it with hope, joy, and restoration. The resurrection provided a second chance for his life to be transformed. If, if you go to John chapter 21, John describes what happens in the days following the resurrection of Jesus. He des- describes a, 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 an experience that was incredible. J- Jesus had met with the disciples two different times um, over the last several days. And, and Peter and the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee fishing all night long. And they, they don't catch anything. These are professional fishermen. They don't catch anything. And in the morning as they're bringing the boat back to the seashore, there's this guy standing on the shore and he yells out to them, take your nets and throw them on the other side. They listen to what he says. And as soon as they put their nets on the other side of the boat, those nets are so full that they can't land the nets into the boat. When they get to shore, they discover there are 153 fish on the other side of the boat after they'd been fishing all night that this guy knew about, and they didn't. Peter recognizes instantly that it's Jesus on the shore. They're about 100 yards away. Peter jumps off the edge of the boat and swims to where Jesus is. Jesus has a fire going, and he fixes breakfast for the, for the disciples as they sit on the seashore. After breakfast, Jesus has a conversation with Peter, and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? In Peter's mind, there's, there's his denial. There's all the stuff that he said. And Peter says, Jesus, you know I love you. Jesus says, Peter, do you, do you love me? Peter says, Jesus, you know I love you. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Three times, just like Peter's denial. And and Peter says, Jesus, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Take care of my followers. 
And from that moment, Peter becomes the leading figure in the New Testament, um, for, probably for the next 10 years or so. Peter becomes the face of the, of the followers of Jesus. So much so that, that uh, just a few weeks later on the day of Pentecost, they're in the temple and, Jesus, uh, and Peter begins to talk about Jesus, to, to describe Jesus as the Messiah, the one that they had put to death. And, and the people respond uh, incredibly to Peter saying, what do we do? What do we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, be baptized. 3,000 people respond. 3,000. Peter's the voice of the disciples in that moment. Peter's life changed so much that he wrote two books, two letters inspired by God to followers of Jesus to say this is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. So much so that those two letters became a part of the core curriculum for followers of Jesus to figure out what it meant to live like Jesus. Those letters are still available to us today in the New Testament, First and Second Peter, and they describe for us what it looks like to follow Jesus. Peter's life was changed. Peter's second chance was, was given to him by Jesus, and it transformed everything for us. I don't know about for you, but f- for me, there's, there's this sense that a second chance sometimes seems too good to be true, doesn't it? There's too much junk in my past, too much that I've done wrong in my, in my history, too many bad decisions, too many times I've tried to start fresh, and, I, and I've not been able to do it. It hadn't worked. Zig Ziglar said, we can't start over but we can begin now to make a new ending for our lives. Hear me, you can't change your past, but you can create a new end to your story. You can't go back and rewind time, but you can look to the empty tomb of Jesus, take the second chance, and start fresh. Mike Foster said it well, there's nothing in your life so lost that God can't find it. Nothing so broken that God can't fix it. Nothing so dead that God can't bring it back to life. You know, uh, uh, just about a year ago, I made a a new friend. A guy came to church for the first time, and he he just seemed really out of place, like he didn't know what to do. Uh, As as I got to know him and heard his story, it was was a pretty incredible story. In the early 1980s, he came home from work one day and found one of his friends in bed with his girlfriend. That night, he got drunk and went out and shot and killed that friend. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. 32 years he's been in prison in the state of Michigan. And, and uh, just about a year ago, last June, he was released. The second Sunday, third Sunday, he was out of prison. He was here at North Point to worship God, to, to share that he'd been given a second chance. He was really awkward because he, he'd been in prison for 32 years. But God gave him a second chance, and Robert found Jesus in prison. Incredible story. I got another friend that she wrote down her story for me. Um, this, This is what she wrote. Last January, like millions of others, I made a New Year's resolution. I knew things had to change, but I wasn't sure how. I was deeply wounded, fatigued from running from a painful past, and I couldn't continue down the road of suffering and silence anymore. My my life had been numbed by drugs and alcohol, by sleeping with men I didn't hardly know, by bad health, by destructive eating habits, by insomnia, and lots of moves across the country. My life was a mess. By late summer, I found myself slipping into deep depression because the promises I had made in January I had not kept. 
I distanced those closest. I distanced myself from those closest to me. I was desperately looking for help, but I couldn't see any hope for change. As fall approached, I remember seeing a post on Facebook for a study group at North Point for women who had had abortions called Awaken. I didn't feel my past abortions were part of the root cause of my pain, but I had nowhere else to turn. After I failed to follow through with a plan to commit suicide on my 24th birthday, I thought Awaken might be my second chance. Something kept telling me to hold on a little longer. When I met with the leader for the first time, I felt nothing but love and acceptance. She kept reminding me that God loved me, though I felt those were just words at first. I didn't think Awaken would help, but it was so much more than I ever imagined. Within a few weeks, I experienced a huge shift in my life. I gained my life back, my passion, my love, my acceptance, and most importantly, I finally grasped the love of God. Not only did I find complete healing from my own mistakes and regrets, but I also learned how to forgive others who had abused me years earlier. Because of Jesus, my life changed completely in ways I never knew possible. I felt a huge weight lift that I wasn't even aware I carried. I see God's amazing work in my life, and I truly know he loves me and has forgiven me. For the first time, I can honestly say I feel no burden or shame. The story, the power of a second chance. I want to share just one last story. Friends of mine, Tim and Courtney Chanter. If you've been a part of North Point for a long time, you know that Tim and Courtney are missionaries from North Point to Papua New Guinea. Uh, 11 years ago, they left this, uh, this part of the world and went to Papua New Guinea into the bush to share the love of Jesus with a tribe of people called the Yembe Yembe. Um, that they spent lots and lots of time translating scripture, translating the Bible into the language of the Yembe so that they could learn firsthand who Jesus was and how much he loved them. Five or six years ago, um, while they were in tribe, Courtney fell and hurt her back. And, um, and what happened was that injury worsened over the years. And it created, uh, it created uh, problems in her that, that a couple of years ago meant that they had to come out of the tribe and go into the city in, in um, New Guinea and Australia for medical treatment because she couldn't function anymore. Um, that was difficult, really hard for them. Uh, just talk about that for a second, what it was like when, the, when, the, when they said, you know what, you can't live there anymore. Um, when we had to come back here, it was just unknown as to whether or not we were able to go back or not. And um, uh, in my heart, there was just so much disappointment and um, a lot of guilt. Um, I think um, I was believing the lies of Satan telling me that it was because of me that um, the Yambis are not getting the truth that they need. And, you know, being the only two people on, the, on this planet to be able to give these people this truth that they need. And I was pulling us out. It was just, it was, I felt a burden of guilt. Do, do you sense that? Do you, you know, for a year, they're there in that part of the world but can't be there. And then they come back here. And um, last June, moved back to Michigan for medical treatment, for medical help, so that, um, so that Courtney's body could get fixed. And, and for the last, what, six, eight months, somewhere in there, um, she's done all the stuff. She's gone to the doctor. She's, she's done all the treatment, done the exercises, changed the diet, done all that stuff. And, and while there was progress, 
one of the things that had happened as a result of the injury was Courtney had severe headaches that lasted 24 hours a day nonstop, and she'd had these headaches for three years. Um, uh, unbearable, you know, really difficult. Raising three boys, being a wife, a mom, really tough stuff. Um, about six weeks ago, Courtney had an MRI to check and see, you know, maybe there's a tumor in there. They've done all kinds of stuff, and the MRI came back clean. Tim says that they didn't find anything there. Um, uh, a beautiful brain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and God had led him to a Christian doctor, a doctor who looked at all the medical stuff, but prayed, to, f- prayed for her diagnosis to be right. And, and, and she came to him and said, here's what I think you need to do. There, there's not anything wrong physically in your body. I think you just need to increase the exercise, increase the stuff that you're doing, and trust God to see what happens. And so uh, that's been going on for a few weeks, for six weeks. And, um, and just tell what happened this past week. Um, I've been headache-free for almost a week now. No headaches at all. It, it started as a few hours, and it's got, so now it's, it's a continual thing with, with just a little smattering here or there. And the really cool thing about Tim and Courtney's story is that over the last year, they, they really had kind of um, accepted, there's no way that they'll ever go back to the MB. It's, it's, it can't happen because of Courtney's physical situation. But they talked to the docs, and the mission and they have approved them to go back to the Yambi for a year and uh, to be able to share Jesus with them again, which is incredibly cool. Amen. Amen, yeah. Give it up for Tim and Courtney for the way that God's working. Here's the reason I wanted to tell Tim and Courtney's story. The story of a second chance for them, a second chance for the Yambi. So much of the time, if you're a follower of Jesus, you think, you know what, I don't have a story like Robert's. You know, I didn't go to prison for 32 years. I wasn't addicted to cocaine. I, you know, I don't got all that stuff. I, it's just me. Tim and Courtney are missionaries, people who have given their life to share in Jesus. And yet there is this sense of, there's been this sense of regret that what they hoped would happen hadn't happened. God is the God of the second chance because of the resurrection of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, um, I'm guessing that somewhere in your life, somewhere in some compartment, maybe it's right there at the surface, maybe it's buried way down, there's this sense of regret. You know, if only I had done this, if only I could have done this, if only my relationship with Jesus was different, this would be so much better. God is the God of second chance. It may be that you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that you were really kind of dragged here today, that, you know, it's a family thing that you do. Here's what I want to tell you. God is the God of a second chance. He can bring hope and peace and joy to your life in a way that you've never experienced. But here's the thing about second chances. God gives us a second chance every day because of Jesus, because the tomb is empty, because Jesus is alive. We have a second chance every day, but we don't have any guarantee of another day. We never know when our life here will end. Don't miss the second chance that comes because of Jesus' resurrection. Let's pray. God, we thank you that through Jesus we can have hope, 
Everything can change. Our world can get turned upside down. God, we thank you that Jesus is alive. We pray in his name. Amen. Let me, let me just say this last thing before, before we sing. If you don't know Jesus, there is nothing that I would love more than to introduce you to him. There's nothing that friends that you have that have a relationship with Jesus would love more than for you to know him and to experience that second chance personally. If that's where you are, let us know.